Hey ladies, welcome back to Bold Is. I am so excited to start a new book of the Bible with you guys. We are designed to study verse by verse. That's the way we've made this podcast and I love doing it with you all. Hopefully you're learning as much as I am. We just finished the Gospel of Mark and if you haven't heard that season yet, go ahead back to our very first season, listen to our podcast of the Gospel of Mark. Now we're going to jump back into the Old Testament. Now we're going to jump backward in the Bible and we're going to read Esther. And like I said, we're going to break it down verse by verse. Super excited to do this with you guys. Let's go ahead and dive right on. You are listening to Bold Is, a ministry podcast training women how to handle the word of God. Buckle up, sis. It's about to get real. Here's your host. Megan Rollins. Okay, here we go. So exciting. Okay, um, I know you guys have probably read the book of Esther. It's a smaller book, and I'm going to be honest, a lot of women typically read it because it's about a woman. There are a couple things that I do want to address before we get started, and um, they're pretty simple. The first one is, fun fact, Esther does not mention God in the entire book. Isn't that insane? But it's okay. Don't fret. The theme throughout this entire book is focused and centered around God and what he does. So I'm so excited to show you how that works. As always, before we begin a new book, we need to look into a few things to better understand it in its context. And if you have not yet, check out our latest article in the Christian Standard. We give pretty explicit steps to reading the Bible, and that's no different than what we're going to do today. So, step one choose a book. We already did this. We're going to look at the book of Esther. So let's move on to step two, address the starter questions. And there's a handful of questions. So I made these and outlined them in um, letters. So A, who wrote it? Well, we actually don't know. Like many Old Testament books, we do not, um, we're not for sure who the author is, but some scholars assume that it could be Mordecai and we'll learn more about him later. Other scholars uh, give credit to Nehemiah. We're just not sure. But the reason for these assumptions are simply because um, they had Jewish, they had interest in Jewish affairs. And the reason for Mordecai is because he probably had access to the official court records. B, to whom was it written? The audience in Esther is pretty wide. Um, There's not an explicit narrowed down audience for it. So lucky for us, we are the audience. C, when was it written? According to the ESV Study Bible, which I recommend, that's what I use, since the book of Esther is anonymous, um, it cannot be dated by the year of its author. However, it matches well the time period in which it is set. The region um, of Ahasuerus, 486 to 464 BC, hence it is probably from this time or soon thereafter. D. What was happening when it was written? Okay, guys, I have a handful of things for you to have this historical context, so bear with me because I am straight up reading from the commentaries. I did not even try to summarize this because I did not want to say something incorrect. So, according to Brenneman, Herodotus basically confirmed Xerxes' claims of extensive political power. On the other hand, Xerxes did not measure up to the moral qualities of his predecessors. Ricciotti says that he inherited none of the good qualities of his predecessors, but only a love of opulent display, which progressively sapped his moral fiber. 
After reconquering Egypt and Babylon, he treated their people cruelly. Herodotus recounts quite a few bizarre episodes that have to do with his wives and concubines. C.E. Van Sickle says the first sign of decay in the empire appears in Xerxes' reign. Xerxes had the weakness, tyrannical character, and love of luxury to be expected in a prince reared at court. As noted earlier, his Greek campaign ended in a series of disastrous defeats. In 470 BC, the Persian army again suffered defeats at the hand of the Greeks. First at Eurymedium, I'm butchering those names, on the coast of Pamphylia, and later at Salamis. I don't think that's how you say that. Salamis in Cyprus. I bet that's closer. This ended the 15-year struggle with Greece. Persia maintained control over Egypt and Cyprus, but they did lose a lot of influence over the Greek colonies in Asia Minor. Xerxes was killed in a conspiracy in 465 um, BC and was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes. The events of Ezra 7 to the end of Nehemiah occurred during the reign of Artaxerxes I. Isn't that interesting? In addition to that, according to Barry Webb, who wrote a lot of the notes for um, the ESV Study Bible in Esther, he says, in terms of biblical history, I almost said history, in the terms of biblical history, Esther belonged to the period after the Babylonian exile, when Persia had replaced Babylon as the ruling power. The story is set in Susa, the Persian capital, during the reign of King Ahasuerus, better known by his Greek name Xerxes I. Some Jews had returned to Jerusalem when they enjoyed a reasonable amount of control over their own affairs as described in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Others, like Esther and Mordecai, were still in exile. As a minority group, the Jews were viewed with suspicion and sometimes faced threats to their existence from people in a position to harm them. In this respect, Esther and Mordecai's situation was similar to that of Daniel and his friends at a century or so earlier. Let's keep going. E. Why was it written? Well, According to the book itself, if we look at verses 26, 27, and 28, it says, Therefore, they called these days Purim after term pure. Therefore, because of all the all of that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in the matter and what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offsprings and Raul who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. As we go into Esther, we're going to learn a little bit more about what Purim is, um, so we'll just hit that when we get there. F. What is the genre and style? Let's just go with historical narrative. There's a lot of different opinions on that, but I feel like historical narrative is the closest we're going to get. G, what are the central themes? Again, Webb says the book of Esther tells us how a Jewish girl became the queen of Persia and saved her people from a plot to destroy them. Fun fact, this is a Megan insert. I consider this the first beauty pageant. There you have it. Back to what Webb said. She is assisted in this by Mordecai, her cousin and guardian. It also explains how a special festival called Purim was established to recall and celebrate the deliverance that the Jews had experienced. So now that we have answered the questions that we ask before we read a book, I'm going to tell you guys the rest of the steps of what I do when reading the books. 
three, read the book in its entirety. This is something I'm going to encourage you to do on your own before the next time we come together. When you read a book in its entirety, you understand everything in its correct context. You're not going to be cherry picking or taking things out of context, which is really, really, really important. Step four, write about what you've read. After reading, write down what you remember. Just a little fun fact, if you are having memory issues, because I have some friends who are, it could be simply because you're tired or overwhelmed. Don't assume the worst. Your brain gets overloaded too. So if you don't remember what you just read, take a nap, eat something, and come back. If you really are having memory issues, well, we're praying for you, buddy. Step five, make a list of keywords and repetitious wording in the passages. This will show you what is important in this book. When things are repeated or when they um, are keywords, it's obviously it means, hey, pay attention. This is important. Step six, research the historical context and culture. Step seven, consult commentaries. We'll be doing this as we study verse by verse. Step eight, study how the book relates to the rest of scripture. And step nine, look for the application. That's easy enough, right? Okay, girls, let's go ahead and dive on in to see what we can learn from the first chapter of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned, and Ahasuerus is Xerxes, um, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. The Persian king mentioned in Ezra, who reigned in 486 and 465 BC, um, that's who we're talking about. And strangely, the Greek versions have instead the name Artaxerxes. Ahasuerus is known in the West as the king who took on the Greeks and who was twice humiliated by them. Yikes! But he was also a great builder who completed and improved upon the great palaces which his father Darius had begun, and he consolidated the empire from India to Ethiopia. And that's from J.G. Baldwin. Not to be confused with J.G. Wentworth. That was terrible. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Alrighty, verse 2. In those days, I'm going to call him Xerxes, even though the ESV, which is what we're reading, says the other name. Xerxes is so much easier to pronounce. Am I right? In those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media, Medea, ooh, that was bad, and Medea, um... And the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. A hundred eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Xerxes. Okay, guys, the king is throwing a party to celebrate the fact that he had put down uprisings in Egypt and Babylon. It took him three years to solidify his claim to the throne after the death of his father, Darius, and now he and his wife are throwing a party to celebrate. A party that lasted six months. Verse 8 is difficult to interpret, but according to some ancient historians, whenever the king drank alcohol, his guests were to do so as well. But here the king has issued a decree that everyone can do as they wish. 
That's really important stuff. All right, verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bestha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zether, and Karkas. Okay, hopefully I didn't butcher their names too badly, so if I did, just bear with me. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. As at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The Hebrew word translated as Mary can mean drunk, so the king likely drunkenly asked for his wife to come to show her off. He may have had her strip nude and she refuses, but he does have absolute power. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethra, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Mimukun, Mimukan, the seven princes of Persia, and Media, the, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes, delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands in contempt, since they will say King Xerxes command Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the Lord, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repeated, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is a vast... For it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. In verse 16, many scholars believe that Mamukin is actually helping Queen Vashti. They could have recommended torture, execution, etc., but instead he shifts the discussion to the effect it might have on marriages throughout the kingdom and has her replaced. But I want you guys to notice how quickly and randomly the king makes law. This sets the stage for the threat to God's people that is to come. Things are off to a rough start. No one reading this will like the king. Most will have Queen Vashti's back, but the real question is, where is God? As we walk through Esther, we will ask the question again and again, but stick with me, ladies. We will pick up chapter two next week when we will meet Esther. In the meantime, be sure to check out our pod- our website, www.theboldmovement.com, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We would appreciate a five-star review over at iTunes. We can also be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We really appreciate your support in keeping this ministry going by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do that by donating anywhere from $1 to $25 a month. It goes to help us pay our bills. (laughs) We also have a brand new podcast out. It is called Real Talk. Make sure you check that out. It is now on iTunes and Spotify as well. One more thing. Be sure to check out our monthly columns at the Christian Standard. They are titled Polished. 
Ladies, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being part of the ministry. So excited you're reading Bible. Don't forget, go out and be bold.